You're listening to WNHH Community Radio 103.5 FM. This is The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. We're digging deep into stories of food, race, radical love, and healing social justice. Today's show has two parts. First up, legislative theater, and part two, the Field of Dreams Garden. We start off with a conversation on legislative theater with Katie Rubin, director of Theater of the Oppressed New York. Katie talks brilliantly about working with communities and audiences to make theater pieces that tackle their real life issues. Some even result in innovative policy changes. Katie speaks about being a white nonprofit director and the practices she uses to create equity and shared power in the organization. And not to be forgotten, the importance of humor and fun in social change work. Hi Katie, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So you're the director of Theater of the Oppressed New York City, NYC. Can you explain to us what Theater of the Oppressed is? Sure. Uh, Theater of the Oppressed is uh, a methodology that was created in the 60s and 70s in South America, um, started by a man named Augusto Boal, um, who was a Brazilian theater director and activist. And based on his Uh, work with and knowledge of Paulo Freire's pedagogy of the oppressed Um, and uh, the quick story is that um, Augusto Boal had a troupe of actors and they were doing political theater um, to uh, persuade um, communities around Brazil of how they should change their you know uh, their lives and they went to a group of, of land workers um, part of the MST the the movement of people who had taken had their land taken away in the in the coup and they um, and they did a play saying you know you should fight the 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 owners who took your land right. you should take arms and you should fight and at the end of the play um, all the audience who was out in the field came and cheered and they said this is amazing we love your play it's so awesome let's do this right now and the actor said, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. These guns are made of cardboard. <laughs> and the, the the audience said, no, no, that's okay. We have guns in over there in the back. Wow. And the actor said, no, no, you know what? I'm a pacifist, and I have to catch my train back to the city. And the audience said, get out. Don't ever come back here. Uh, you're telling us to risk our lives, and you don't even believe in what you're telling us, not to mention you're not, and you're not prepared to right. join in. And uh, and you don't know what this is like. You you don't live this life. You're going back to the city. Right. And so, um, but I realized that that was not an effective way to make change. And um, building off what Paulo Freire was doing in terms of um, ways to to engage in learning that we're not replicating traditional models of oppression. Mm -hmm. That is the inspiration for Theater of the Oppressed. So in Theater of the Oppressed work, a community that is facing discrimination builds a play about the, the real experiences that they are having. Right. And then performs that play for their peers and for neighbors and strangers who might be related to that issue in some way but don't know how yet Mm -hmm. and then in that performance they say okay we perform the play but you're not just spectators you're also spect actors because we're going to invite you to take action with us Mm. and then the audience or spect actors are invited on stage to try out ideas in a forum to change the the situation and brainstorm theatrically and then there's a critical analysis of all of those ideas what would we need to put in place what might happen next what could be you know what could what could happen to a woman if they tried that what could happen to a man if they tried that what are the different kind of you know so like replacing uh, actors on mm-hmm. stage yeah replacing actors on stage and so every single theater of the oppressed performance has that element it's never just a play and um, we're not teaching a lesson um, we are engaging in in creative problem solving and and critical dialogue but through fun and and creativity right yeah and I know in New York some of what you've done is work with homeless people to do this can you talk a little bit about that yeah so the way we work at TONYC or Theater of the Oppressed NYC is that we partner with social service organizations and city agencies and community based organizations Um, and some of those are working with people experiencing homelessness people living with HIV and AIDS um, recent immigrants to New York City um, trafficking survivors um, and and people coming out of the criminal justice system or who've experienced 
injustice in the mm-hmm. criminal justice system. Right. And um, and so those are some kind of issues in communities that we're often working with. Um, and those partnerships have come out of those folks coming to us and saying, look, we have a lot of stories. We want to make a play about it because we can't, you know, we want to engage in advocacy and have fun and we really need a platform to share and try to change these problems mm-hmm. um so everyone can be an actor in a theater of the oppressed play in fact Pawal said that even actors can do theater <laughs> of the oppressed right so the idea is that there is no script there's really very few barriers to participating yeah. um and uh you know it, it it's really um ev- everyone is an actor and it's regardless of ability or interest sometimes people are really excited to be in the theater and sometimes are, people are really excited to engage in activism and advocacy yeah. and those are the different ways into this work yeah one of the things I think is so powerful is what you were just describing about people who have direct experience with an injustice in our society mm-hmm. being the ones to actually create what the story is and how it's told. Mm-hmm. Because that's so that's not part of the rest of our society. Like usually it's some playwright or a director or somebody who has some idea. They they might have some personal contact, but the people acting it don't usually and that seems like such it's such a core principle of theater of the oppressed and I'm wondering if you could think of like some examples of why that's important or talk about why why that's such an important piece of of creating the the theater. Mhm mhm. It it is a core to our work that the people who are facing the problem um know the most about it mm-hmm. and therefore can um share it with the most honesty and urgency, right? And so from the part the perspective of of theater um, what makes theater exciting is when it's urgent, and so right. you you see plays, or if you if you go to to if you go to a, take an acting class, you do a lot of exercises to figure out how to connect the objective of the character to yourself, and you spend lots of money and time on this, and then maybe some people we really believe that they have that objective, right? And so here, you know. I don't believe that theater of the oppressed is the only way to do theater, but I have to say I am more engaged seeing an actual urgent, a, a problem that's actually urgent to the person and that the, the character and the person are, uh, are the same or are similar. So from right. the perspective of, of, of getting me invested in trying to change that story as somebody who can be a peer experiencing the same thing or as somebody who might not know that this is needs to be something I'm working on yet or is an issue that's related to my life. Um, that is simply the best, the, the most effective way um, and the most ethical way, right? Because we know that when organizations, advocacy groups, policy people, you know, all these playwrights, whoever it is who's translating the experience through their own filters, um, often those translations are maybe not intentionally, but disrespectful or, you know, um, or unethical. And right. a personal example is when when I first started uh, working with one, uh, with, with a very early uh, troupe of actors with experience of homelessness with TONYC, I didn't know a lot about what it was to be homeless in New York City. And I thought, like I think a lot of people think, that there aren't enough shelters. And that's why a lot of the folks in this troop were sleeping outside. Um, and there aren't enough beds and et cetera. And then immediately the content in the play was about the condition of the shelters, right. which I hadn't heard so much about. And I didn't know all these really... Um, horrible things, dangerous, violent things that happen to people going into shelters and how many people choose not to sleep in shelters because they're more safe on the street. And if I had gone in saying, I'm going to tell you what your play's about, I would have been wrong and it wouldn't have been ethical. Right. Yeah, that's a great example. I know that um, part of what you're doing with this theater is telling these honest stories and then you've created this this you and all the people involved in your troupe have created this legislative theater which you're so you're using the theater as advocacy can you explain a little bit how that works sure so after a few years of doing these forum performances where the audience gets up and tries ideas in the role of the the characters in the play um, sometimes we were frustrated because you can be trying to get your food stamps renewed at the HRA office and uh, 
there's some rule or something that's not you're not allowed to get them and really the only thing that the audience members could think of to do was to come up there and beg the staff member to consider them as a human being <laughs> which is very nice but not necessarily effective in changing a problematic right. rule or structure or um you know larger structures of racism that that affect right. these kinds of problems so even though it was fun and exciting it was also frustrating because um everyone's now really activated about the issue and um and seeing the limitations of our individual interventions, right? right? And or even community interventions, like you can you can have a you can have a, a, a protest outside that HRA office. You can call the New York Times. But what are you um, actually asking? But them what for? are you actually what's, asking what's them the for? And yeah. even if you call the New York Times, somebody at some point you're going to get to the fact that this is a law in New York City. This is a rule of the institution. This is a policy, and the people who are able to change those policies um, are not necessarily right. paying attention. So. We looked into and started developing this model of legislative theater, um, which Boal had started to do in uh, Rio when he actually, for one term, was kind of accidentally a city council member. Hmm. So what he did was he brought his forum theater plays into the city council, had them do their play, had some interventions where somebody got up and tried an idea and then said, OK, that's my proposal. We're all going to vote on it now. Wow. Right. Essentially. I was just going to ask you if this had been done in other places. Yes. Yeah. Um, so that's really exciting. And in that process, about 13 laws were passed or changed in Brazil that were sparked by forum by legislative theater events. And um, that was really exciting. It hadn't been done a lot since then for decades in really around the world, a little bit, but not so much. And we were having trouble finding examples that we could learn from. And we also had the problem that we were not a city council. None of us were a city council right. member. And so we couldn't bring the play into our own hearing. So we had to get them to come into our event. Um, but we uh, started doing legislative theater in 2013. And the model is that um, we, it's, you know, the same idea always that the, it's the same plays that are performed by the people experiencing oppression and the same uh, structure where the audience is invited to get up and try to change things. And, and then we think about change on the individual, the community and the institutional levels mm -hmm. in that forum. So. I can try something as a person, as an individual, trying to change another individual. If that doesn't work, I can bring my allies, my backup, right? If that doesn't work, I can say, okay, I've found what the gap is between what I am able to do or what we are able to do and what the rule is. And right. then the audience takes that information and writes down policy ideas on cards right there in the theater mm. with the input and, and inspiration from policy advisors that we bring in from lots of advocacy organizations, organizing groups like the New York Civil Liberties Union and the Vera Institute of Justice and the Bronx Defenders. So we get lots of lawyers and advocates. So how does that work in practice? Like like you, people have done the play once on stage mm -hmm. and then you break to start into the forum part with the mm -hmm audience participation mm -hmm. so in terms of sharing if, if the audience doesn't come up with policy ideas on their own is there a facilitator who then asks policy people in the audience to share how, do, how does so that the work? audience always comes up with policy ideas on their own and we try to really break down the idea of policy to not be so intimidating right, right? so anything could be a policy right you don't have to know a lot about policy in order to make a new policy right and that's why we have those advisors there to help translate what people's ideas okay. are into really practical actionable awesome. things yeah. so their job is after the audience does make a proposal but what we do is we have an advocacy fair before the show where you can meet the different groups working on the issues and get some context so if you get there an hour early you can see okay I see this is happening on this issue this is happening I can sign up on this petition I can get this piece of information so they can go in prepared with on this issue of collateral consequences of the criminal justice system and of conviction right in terms of housing and employment and and um, voting in New York City I know already that there's ABC you know pro uh, proposals happening and that's going to inform what I want to propose myself right um, so that is information that we're giving or sharing with the audience. But then they are writing their own proposals, which get sorted and, and collated by these policy advisors who are sitting there in the room, who've seen the plays, who are working on those issues day in and day out mm -hmm. at their organizations. Um, and that happens while the audience is there. So right. they're sort of That's watching great. that process. And the criteria that they have is the most popular ideas and the most um, innovative ideas and the most responsive to the plays and the most practical that they could see that a, 
a, a concrete action in mm. either the city council or in a city agency could happen from that idea. Mm. And then they narrow it down to about three. And then they pitch them to city council members and commissioners and federal policymakers. Who pitches them? The policy advisors. At the play. At the play, again, in front of the audience. Say, these were the top three audience ideas. But this happens, like, on stage but quietly so that they have a little bit of privacy to... Um, to negotiate okay. because they can say, no, I can't commit to this. Yes, I can commit to this okay. because you're trying to get all those politicians to commit to two to three of the policy ideas of the audience members so that they come up on stage then and say, okay, we're ready to hold a vote on your ideas. We're ready to commit to them after you vote them in. Symbolically, we are committing to taking them forward to our respective offices hmm. and chambers. And then every audience member has a red or a green card in their, in their program and they vote for the idea that they might have written or their neighbor did or it was a part of what they wrote is in there. Mm -hmm. um, and then they can express dissent. So we have, if there are red cards, people sometimes have dissent about the, the procedure by which that policy, that new rule is going to be carried out, right? Or, you know, um, what's going to be done with the information that's collected depending on, you know, right. what the idea is. And then... Um, and then there might be amendments based on that dissent, and we might take another vote. How long does all of this take? <sighs> yes. It takes a couple of hours, and the truth is that the policy creation process is is the beginning of a process. You right. can't refine policies in 10 or 20 minutes, but it's really important for us that the people see that whole process and get to have the vote in front of the policymakers and that those policymakers, right, those council members, et cetera, were there from the beginning seeing the play right. so they know that what they're responding to, and they're talking with the audience and the actors throughout the event right there's then, so much that's important in that because yeah. it's like policy that is coming in response to the people affected by the problem mm -hmm. and and the people who are affected by the problem giving ideas about how to solve that problem right like that fact alone mm -hmm. doesn't happen with most policy that's creation right. in this country and what I, what we think is also really key is that it's coming through a creative process because there's a lot of crappy policy that's coming out. Mm -hmm. And that's where we need Forum Theater and Theater of the Oppressed to come up with the radical new idea that nobody's been able to come up with mm -hmm. yet. Or to get people in, invested in backing an idea that they maybe wouldn't have turned out for at a rally or a hearing before right. because they've seen the human impact of it. Right. Yeah, and I would think that the politicians probably have a different kind of connection to the the policy proposals that are mm -hmm. coming up is there an example of something like a policy this process that was particularly powerful and and successful yeah so um in 2014 um we had uh, a play by a trans woman who was uh experiencing domestic violence uh, or that was the the story and that was that was the character and and it was from the real life story of 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 the troop and um in the scene, um, the police come to her door. They get called, and uh, they ask, "What's the matter?" And then they ask for her ID. And her ID, uh, the gender marker on her ID, doesn't match her gender. And the police say, uh, "You don't have a an accurate ID. You have a fake ID." Um, and that gives them reason to search the apartment. They find syringes that she's using for hormones, and they accuse her of drug mm. use, and they arrest her. Oh, my God. So the audience identifies a problem here. And in the event was council member Carlos Menchaca, who is, uh, it was his first term. He happened uh, to study theater in college. Um, that's how we like to, you know, connect with. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And he is the chair of the immigration committee in the city council. And the immigration committee had, or he, had just recently sponsored proposed the new municipal ID law, which of course was a takeoff on New Haven's municipal ID mm -hmm. that I think New Haven did first. Is yes. that right? Yep. Yeah. And, um, and this would be an ID that every city resident could have and that would support uh, the needs of a lot of immigrants in the city. But um, the audience who knew that he was the sponsor because we helped them understand, right? And he did too, proposed that in this ID, you could write in either gender marker without any proof of surgery or doctor's notes or the other kinds of restrictive things that were Exist currently in place ID. on a state right. ID. Or you could leave it blank, which was a particularly radical part of the proposal, and not list either gender. 
And this passed in the event, right, as a, as a policy. And then the council member stayed for about an hour after the event talking to the actors in that scene mm-hmm. and audience members who identified as trans. And then that became part of the bill. Mm. Um, and did they go with the with the blank yes. gender thing? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So and that was, uh, you know, this was not the first event where New York City organizing groups saw that this ID would have an impact on uh, on, you know, trans People's and gender lives, nonconforming yeah. people. And so that wasn't that in itself wasn't radical but the proposal here that passed right that also that you could leave it blank um was was radical and the connection that the council member made um at that event to talk to the people whose stories were inspiring Mm. this new policy um and so that's where we also see that there can be a lot of impact where there is something um, that's already on the table and people know about it and there's an opportunity to correct or improve some nuance to be more responsive mm-hmm. to the lives of New Yorkers um, and the needs of New Yorkers. Um, so that's one example. Yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious, like that's an example of how being involved in, in theater, the oppressed and legislative theater has impacted a legislator. And I'm wondering if there are some examples of how what the impact is on the people who are participating and the agency they feel either to continue within activism in theater of the oppressed work or to be have more agency in their lives in other ways Mm -hmm. definitely many of our actors who've been a part of legislative theater have then gone on to engage in city politics and civic change in a way that they hadn't before by attending rallies, sometimes with us, sometimes on their own, by calling their council members, by showing up for meetings. So the kind of civic engagement um, component is huge and the the accessibility and inclusivity that we are trying to create in that space. Mm -hmm. Um, But on a broader level, um, we see that all theater of the oppressed work is multiplication right so it's never just for consumption everyone is has the ability to be an actor and then to be an actor in their own lives and to be and to lead their own communities through this so we prioritize joker training uh or joker development so the development of of facilitators and and that's what joker training and that's what joker trainers yeah okay Um, i mean we train people from the outside who want to go back to their own communities and and be jokers and run and do theater of the oppressed um and we train but we also prioritize training our own actors who want to lead these processes so about half of our staff jokers or facilitators have been actors in our Mm. troops and that's really important to us when we think that not only is that um responsive to the ways that people want to keep engaging with this work and with the organization and with social change in general but also a more effective way to carry out our work Mm -hmm. um because the new actors that we're going to meet um are it's it are more it's easier for them to connect with with people who have had similar experiences right yeah that's so important. Again, yeah. that's something that doesn't happen a lot in mm-hmm. a lot of nonprofit organizations or businesses even. So yeah. it's really important. I'm wondering in the in that light if you could talk a little about um, power dynamics within your organization, like whether it's around race or around class. Um, and also for you as a white person being the director of this organization, which is a multiracial organization, kind of how do you deal with power dynamics and, and race and class within organization yeah it's a great question we've been thinking since the organization started about how do you not replicate the kind of oppressive power dynamics and um, racial injustice um, that we see that we're talking about in our plays within the structure of our organization and um, as we grow as a nonprofit and as we look to other nonprofits we see a lot of nonprofits replicating those power structures um, not necessarily because they intend to, but because we're all learning from the examples around us. And sometimes all the examples around us need to change. Right. right. Um, or that's what people call best practices. Right. And we're and and they, and there's a lot of threats behind it. Like, you know, you'll you'll this you'll you'll lose your status. You'll this if you don't, you know, there's so many kind of rules around running an organization that people think that it's different than the kinds of power dynamics that we're talking about in our place. But we are trying to constantly remind ourselves that it's not. 
And so some of the ways that we address that are through um, constantly, you know, playing around with our um, organization structure to to redesign and rethink how decisions are made in the organization. So, for instance, um, every year we have a huddle, um, which has our actors and our staff and our jokers and our board all together, addressing two big questions for the organization that were identified by all those players in the last year, mm -hmm. and then setting recommendations for the organization for the next year. And then all those groups are meeting regularly, and sometimes together and sometimes not, throughout the year to work, work on, on those, those recommendations, yeah. report back to the other groups, come up with the new questions, et cetera, right? So that's one example. Um, another example is that in our staff, we do 360 degree reviews and no other kind of reviews um, because we think that- What does that mean? That means that, yeah, so that means that everybody is giving everybody feedback. The facilitators are giving the program directors feedback the staff in the office are giving me feedback um every everybody's giving feedback to everybody according to the same kinds of questions about how that person carries out their work and with the same criteria that we use to identify to talk about our facilitation like um we we use uh, some words that we came up with to to feedback to each other about our facilitation accuracy style and ethics so mm. it's like just the kind of nitty-gritty of the work and then the energy with which I'm carrying out the mm. work that leads to the ethics of the work, meaning am I in 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 carrying out this fundraising uh, need, am I, you know, shutting people out or not being inclusive or not, you know, asking questions or not making decisions together, then it doesn't matter if I'm doing that part accurately, if it's not ethical not the right and therefore thing, yeah. right towards the goal of our work. Um, and then similarly in our facilitation, we have monthly workouts where we are all practicing in front of each other and giving each other feedback um, because um, facilitating a group of actors through that process is another great opportunity or terrible opportunity to carry out power dynamics mm -hmm. that we don't want to be carrying out. So um, you guys are watching each other, how you facilitate a group and then giving each other feedback about Kind mm -hmm. of were you were you looking at what the dynamics of the group were? Were you being equitable about who got to speak or, or act or do mm -hmm. things? Or we're trying out new ways of of working in front of each other and mm -hmm. giving feedback all the mm -hmm. time. And then also we're engaging in racial justice training right now. We're in a racial equity uh, uh, lab, uh, innovation lab um, for the whole year and uh, getting kind of coaching um, from Race Forward, which is a great organization. And so part of it is constantly recognizing that we need to look at racial equity and racial justice in our own organization and constantly engaging in uh, having external um, support for mm -hmm. that too. Um, and I'm listing some examples, but I think that the key is that we feel like we need to A, talk about it, and B, do things about it. Mm -hmm. And we consider the way we run our organization the same as a forum. So we try something for a year or two, sometimes it doesn't work, and then we try something else. Mm -hmm. We need to keep trying things. Right. And we need to really try things, not just saying we're going to do. Right. right. And so we have a set of anti-oppression principles, and we introduce people to it. Um, and we but state it's about clearly, how it comes but it's in about practice. how it comes in practice. Right. That's right. Yeah. 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 And it's a and it's a journey. Yeah. Yeah. And what kinds of things do you do when you're working with a group? Say you have a group of homeless people or you have a group of people who are affected by HIV and they're a multiracial group, multi, their class backgrounds might be all different. How do you, um, are there specific ways that you work on power dynamics when you're working with mm -hmm. creating a theater piece mm -hmm. to help people who maybe don't have the level of awareness about these issues yeah. that you people running your organization do? Yeah. So... It, it, it also relates to the part of your question that I left out an answer to before about how I engage, particularly uh, as a white woman, thinking about racial equity and power dynamics and not replicating sure. um, those things in our work. One piece is uh, through that constant feedback loop with the rest of the people I work with, being very clear about what it is that I do bring to the organization and what it is that I don't bring. Mm. And not thinking of myself because of any title or position um, or privilege or background of bringing more than I than I actually have, and then um, so what does that mean? Like, what do you think you bring and don't bring to the organization? Mm -hmm. um, I bring from my from my work 
and my long training in theater of the oppressed, I bring a lot of theater of the oppressed skills. I don't bring um, the best ideas about how to uh, shape an organization. I don't bring the best ideas about community organizing or outreach. I don't bring the best ideas um, about who to hire. Um, so those are things where I step back um, and 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 ask other people to to step up to to yeah. step up and to remind me to step back. Mm. You know, um, that's one thing. And then another thing is is naming um, when it's appropriate and when it doesn't take up too much space. That I am a white lady and that we might be entering into conversations that that I don't know. So that's why I'm listening. So making sure that because sometimes it can be difficult for other people to name that mm -hmm. um, for me and right. say, you don't know because you're a white lady. Right. So sometimes it's helpful to say Absolutely. that myself. Yeah. Um, so those are some ways that I try to I try to engage um, and and be really clear about leadership opportunities throughout the organization and when I'm stepping back from those leadership opportunities mm -hmm. um, not because I am trying to be nice but because I think it serves the organization better um, to have different leaders right. who are bringing different things right um, and then uh, in terms of the spaces that we are creating you know we often have really diverse audiences and some people come in with not a lot of personal knowledge of the issue but they feel like they have a lot of academic knowledge or you know um they just have a lot of privilege so they like to talk a lot about things and so so these are the audiences like if you have a group you've worked with for a few hours or a few days on creating a piece and then the point in which you're doing your forum component where you're asking for audience participation you're saying you have sometimes have people who yeah and sometimes we're working with those troops for months so we've been building a community for months and then all of a sudden there's you right. know this audience <laughs> and, and that um, really changes the dynamic yeah. and it's our job as facilitators as jokers to make sure that we are seeing the whole audience that we are asking people who are taking up too much space to not that we are naming that ourselves do name it? That's we do name asking, it yeah. in a way that not trying to you know i mean there's this phrasing calling out versus calling in right, right. so not, you're not trying to shame not somebody and saying like trying you're to shame being somebody. a white person taking up too much space but how would you actually say it to them yeah so um this is great we've heard a lot we need to hear from somebody else that's the first time <laughs> <laughs> um and then the second time might be um well, sometimes I, I specifically turn it around to the other parts of the audience. Does anyone who has experience of this issue have something to respond to that, right? Or have another perspective on this question? Right. So, so you bring it back to that value yep. of the people who have experienced yep. this have the most wisdom about it. Yeah, that's and right. It's like a gentle reminder yep. for people. That's yep. great. Yeah. So you're here in New Haven because your troupe is putting on a play here with people from New Haven. And I'm curious about your experience growing up in New Haven and how that has informed some of your understanding about race and class and cities and community. Yeah, um, that's uh, another great question. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I learned a lot about race and class and diversity and how diversity isn't so great when it's not really about um, equity and inclusion uh, in schools, different schools, some schools that were that were called diverse, but had, you know, tracks of honors and this and that that, you know, totally were totally not diverse and segregated. Yeah. Right. And I, that's not I don't think that's not a phenomenon of New Haven. Right. But um, it it happens when you grow up in a diverse city that is not you know that the education system as it is in the whole country is not committed to equity or really sees all students as equal mm -hmm. um so that's one thing and then also you know i would say that i grew up in a arts and activism family and um something i say a lot is that you know we engaged in lots of activism and i remember being dragged around to meetings with activists and i remember thinking that generally they weren't so fun they were right. full of fighting about the best way to, <laughs> you know, make change and be tolerant. And I thought that not only it wasn't fun, so I didn't really want to go, but 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 also it didn't seem to reflect the kind of world that we were trying to right. create. And uh, it was so much in opposition to the arts part of my life 
Um, and that was informative. But again, I don't think that's particular to New Haven. No. Um, but that's... But it informed yeah. how you've developed your adult life and right. the things you're doing. And, you know, one of the things I think is super valuable about the work that you do and the way you do it is that you bring play and humor into it. And that is so important because I think social change can just feel like a burden and... Yeah can just feel like too much, especially for people who are already suffering and struggling yeah. in their lives. You're like, really? You want me to come to a meeting? So yeah. how does the play and jokerness and humor yeah. piece play in and, and engage people? We take fun really seriously, right? <laughs> so the the word joker for facilitator comes from the, you know, comes from Boal's work. And the idea was originally the joker in the deck of cards um, who doesn't have a suit. So the unbiased joker who isn't on one side mm. or the other. So that in itself isn't, you know, about the joker who makes jokes. And we don't understand it to be the joker who makes jokes, but that joker character, right, in theater or on the deck of cards is about fun and playfulness and brightness and liveliness. And we think, yes, that it needs to be fun so that people will want to show up for social justice. And also, it needs to be fun because fun breeds creativity and all the solutions we have are not working. So it's both, you know, right. about getting people there and it's integral to the way that we actually want to make the change as mm -hmm. well. Does it, do you see it like light a spark in people when they're watching? Yeah, for sure. And we want, you know, we want to throw people off. We want to get people a little bit out of their comfort zone and, and play is a great way to do that. Um, and because again, if, if I'm in my comfort zone, I can only imagine the solutions that I already know. So I have to, you know, get back to when imagination was key. Um, mm. And so, you know, imagination is, is key for us. It is not something we left in kindergarten. It is essential to social change. That is a great last word. <laughs> Thank you so much Thank for you. talking with me. To check out more info and find resources on legislative theater and theater of the oppressed New York, go to thetableunderground.com. Part two of today's show joins local gardener, activist, and grandma, Jamila Rashid, in her Field of Dreams community garden in the Hill neighborhood of New Haven, Connecticut. We take a midsummer tour of what's growing and hear about the impact of natural beauty and fresh food on her block. Hello, Jamila. Hello, Tegan. Thank you for having me at your garden today. I'm very happy to have you here. It's always good to see you and talk with you about good things. Yeah, so it is the, the height of summer. I'm very happy to be here right at this moment. And this is prime gardening season, so thank you for, for welcoming me in here. And this garden is called the Field of Greens. Can you tell me a little bit about how you started this garden in your neighborhood? Sure. When um, the New Haven Food Policy Council was holding a summit about food in 2012, I believe, and I attended that from an invite from a friend of Facebook, and I'm there, and Will Allen was there, and he really impressed me with how easy it was to start growing food in inner city, and just his idea of what he has done, and his history was very impressive to me, so... The next day, they, they organized a bus tour of the different community gardens in New Haven. And as I'm riding along, I said, we can do this on my street. I said, I need to look into see how we can get it done. Because the lot that our garden is in now was just an open field. Two houses had been on this lot. They actually buried the houses under the ground. And it was becoming a dumping ground for everybody's trash. It was becoming a dog run for everybody's dog. And so... This neighborhood, I felt I've been here almost 30 years at that point, and said so we need to do something to improve our neighborhood, and that was the, that was the start of me looking into getting this started. That's great. I remember what it looked like then. And so, you worked with a lot of community groups to get this going. Can you tell me a little just about actually getting the garden built in here? Yeah. Well, I first spoke with uh, Jacqueline. She's with New Haven Farms, and asked her to come out as well as. URI to look at the land to see if it was worth it and they told me yes it's in a good position plenty of sun is actually on a slant so they said it would be great and so from that point I said I needed money because I mean I know the land trust which oversees the community gardens in New Haven would have helped but from what I wanted to do I didn't want to burden them with the cost so much so I went online and looked for you know grants 
for community at projects. Um, the Community Foundation of New Haven helped. Um, there was there's a micro grants given to us from I can't think of the name of the organization. They offer money in New Haven, and I went online and found um, uh, something greens, mm -hmm. <laughs> an organization that. In, up in Vermont that offered money. So I ended up collecting like $3,200 that I raised online. And I went to different places to get the wood for the beds. And I got uh, Common Ground. There are people who, there's some of their teachers and some of their students came out and helped build the beds. And of course the land trust got us the soil. And so that's how we got started with our first seven beds. Yeah, so you worked the system. You got all the organizations helping you. And um, were there key people in your neighborhood who, who partnered with you on this? Well, I have a couple of neighbors. They're mostly, they're older than me. They're, they're considered seniors, but they said, grow whatever you want to grow, you know. And, you know, I have a couple of people who've been on the street about as long as I have who really said they would love to grow cucumbers, et cetera. And so, they were there to talk about it, and whenever there was some physical work that would need to be done, they were there to help. Um, I had a good friend who lived down at the end of the street, and she was always there helping me, but this year she moved to Tennessee, so she's not here with me anymore. But she was a big part in, in getting a lot of stuff started. Mm -hmm. Do you want to show me a little what you have growing right now? Sure. The, the garden, as you see, it was nothing but open field. The front fence was basically falling down and there was no fence in the back of the property and so the city came out and fixed the front fence and put in a new fence in the back because then we had to keep the dogs out and I got this fence along the side here you know I had um, Reliance fence came out and they gave me a good deal on getting the fence built so we put cardboard down we put you know we blocked down and we put chips down before we built anything in here because the lead levels were very high mm -hmm. so you had to build on top of the soil and can you tell me a little for people who haven't been here what your neighborhood is and and kind of how you would describe your neighborhood you know we live in the hill section of new haven um we have a very high poverty rate in this area um not to say that there's not people who have jobs and do well but where i'm at is concentrated poverty i feel people don't you know their jobs are low wages some people work two or three jobs to keep a roof over their head and to feed their children and clothe them so they don't have a lot of excess wealth and so that's one thought of mine was a garden with free food who wouldn't want that and that's why I call it Field of Greens because you know the movie Field of Dreams right. so they say you build it they will come so that's what that's what my idea was in the back of my head yeah so have they come they've come to take <laughs> <laughs> um, I have three people I can rely on like as I said they're seniors I really would want to get our youth out here but they have to be taught and their parents have to sort of like lead them. So I've got three people I can rely on who come out and help weed and help clean up. They're, they're staunch supporters. So, yeah. And then other people come to get veggies when you have extra to share. Yep, they come. And I myself have picked stuff or harvested stuff and I've actually got my cart and I go around about two blocks in the neighborhood and give away vegetables. Aww. That's so sweet. <laughs> yeah, I do that. And, and, I, and, and also in front of my house, I have a small table, which I have a sign saying free vegetables. So if I have excess and I'm not up to it that day, I put it right in front of my house and say people could take whatever they want. Yeah. And what's the response when you go around? Do, do people want to take it or are they a little skeptical or they know you by now? Well, yeah, I think most people take it because it's free. Um, and we have a good conversation, and I give—I actually have cards that I give people with my number. I have cards with the time that the garden's open. So I'm trying to encourage people to come out and be a part of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hopefully when they're here, we can have a good conversation. I mean, I just—my neighbor next door, two blocks, two doors down, he just started coming out, and he said he's grown up on farms all his life. He loves everything green. And I'm like to myself, where have you been? <laughs> <laughs> So I'm trying to really build him up to feel confident to be in here and, and understand how much of importance his presence is. Yeah. How do you go about doing that? Because that's an important part of being an activist and an organizer. Well, I try to um, tell him that he, what he does has worth to the community as a whole. I mean, he seems to really enjoy being here. He has a lot of conversation. He loves the idea of being able to get these vegetables. And he, he loves, I guess, the idea that he's probably supplementing his meals. So 
just to encourage them and make them feel good about being here is what I try to do. Yeah. Building that relationship and then yeah. people feel welcome. Building people's comfort. That's what I try and do, building their comfort. Mm. So, yeah, we have cucumbers right here. And we've, we've done 40 pounds of cucumbers already wow. this season. And I can see some in there already. So this is a bed of cucumbers. We got celery, but it doesn't look too good. I have it in my backyard, and it's doing wonderfully. I don't know if it's the soil or what. Mm. We had string beans. We had radish, so a lot of that's gone. Mm. Over Look at this huge cucumber you have in there. I know. Ooh. I know. They've they been bigger than that. in there, right? But they've I been bigger them. than that. Yeah. They've been bigger than that. People say they're too big. They're too seedy, but... You just take the seeds out and get the rest yeah. of it. Yeah. And we have Swiss chard, and I, I lo I'm, a, I'm a lover of greens. So wherever, I love the blue, the red in the Swiss chard. I love the white in it. So we have Swiss chard, we have more cucumbers. And I did put a pumpkin seed in this bed, but I don't think it's doing very well. Mm. We have sweet potatoes in these pots. Nice. So we're trying to do sweet potatoes this year. And here we have our yellow squash plant. This is from one seed and I'm just like, overwhelmed we're looking at this but it's got, it's got a lot of fruit on it so we're really happy about that yeah the plant is about four feet in diameter with a lot of blooms on it so lots of yellow squash growing Woo. and we've got eggplant see the purple we've got peppers the jalapeno peppers we've got our tomato plants of course i didn't do as many tomatoes and that's like a friend of mine was out yesterday and you know i, I told her take what you need and she said, you know, you don't have as much as you've had in the past. I said, uh, yes, I'm cutting back. <laughs> you know, all this extra work, I think put out what people like and then it'll go. Yeah. But a lot of stuff people don't understand. They're not familiar with. Like our immigrant families, they're not familiar with collard greens. Yeah. But I'm trying to encourage them to take it, you know, and maybe I can get someone like you or someone else who's good at cooking to come out and do a demo and get them to come and see how they right. can cook it. But yeah, that's where we're at. We got turnip greens. I don't think we're gonna get any turnips though. Cause I looked at the roots and there's no bulbs, yeah. but we got, we've been getting a lot of greens for the last couple of weeks and it looks good. It looks so gorgeous. I've been picking that. We have a couple of elderly people on the street. So I've been giving that to them. We've got our sunflower plant here. Yes, beautiful. <laughs> and so you have a number of um, refugee families that live in the neighborhood. I think many, what do you see as their interaction with your garden? Well, they, they know, they know my name, mm -hmm. you know, they're very happy to see me. And one of them speaks a l very little English, but she tries. So they really like coming here because their thing is they've got like three and four kids per family. They come in with a stroller. And they're coming here to get food. So I have to sort of like try to communicate to them that, well, let's help out a little bit, you know, pull some weeds. And they'll do that. One day they came out last week, it was so hot. And they were like, they went over to the side where the shade was and they said, ready to go. <laughs> I could, but my friend, he had already picked like a lot of the cucumbers. So I said, well, we already got cucumbers ready when you want to take them, but we need to clean up some of the beds. And so they stopped and they started pulling and they're talking in their language to themselves. Yeah. So I have no clue what they're saying, but they're getting the work done. They, they, they come in and they do what they can. Yeah. yeah. And so you're a American black Muslim and, and yeah. many of them are Muslims from Afghanistan or from yeah. other Middle Eastern countries. Do they feel some comfort and connection with you because you are another person in hijab? Yes. Yeah. I think that's, they, it's sort of like their eyes widened up. When I first met them, they were really happy to see a Muslim in the neighborhood because I've heard of some stories like one family, someone threw a rock through their window, like a couple of years ago, you know, little girls, the little girl told me and I said, Oh no. And she said, yeah, I almost got cut, you know, and I couldn't understand why that happened. Mm. But I think they're, they're not, they weren't comfortable really going out around the community. They come to the garden with no problem because they know they can come in here i'm in here we we can relate on the islam anyways if nothing else and so they're they're comfortable with me yeah that's great what are some other ways that you think the garden has positively affected your block and your neighborhood well i found that my first concern with the garden was that someone would vandalize it you know i thought i would wake up one day and bed bed sides were torn off and vegetables are strewn all over the place and then I came like I said oh it still looks like the same so I think because I've been in this neighborhood at least going on 40 years that there's this respect that exists for my husband and I because we've been involved in like 
anti-drug action in this community for a long time because that's big, a bigger problem here. Um, and we've actually closed the street down about 12 years ago and to stop drug selling. So people respect us for that. Um, but I think what it has done is brought beauty, some beauty to the community. It's brought people with a sense of we have some worth in this community. And that's, that's what I'm trying to get them to understand, that we're more than what they, in quotation marks, says we are. We can improve ourselves if it means just planting a flower, looking at the beauty of the flower. I mean, every time people pass by, they say, this is so beautiful. I said, but it's ours. You're welcome to come in and help. And they just keep walking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I've, I've, I've seen older people, they come by. I think because it's not right there. Some people are like two blocks over. If it's not right there in front of them, they don't think, let me get up and go to the garden. You know, if it's down your, but if it's on your street, you would think, she goes there every day. She picks up, let me go down there. But that's not the mentality for some reason. It's just not there. That's something I'm trying to understand. How come people don't come in is what you're trying to understand. Yeah. Trying yeah. To understand. But it, it still has an impact that to walk by this lot as a beautiful place full of plants and gardens and knowing that people are using it and doing something good in it versus an empty lot with trash and junk in it. So Exactly. And that that's my thing. It's like, you know, I've had people like some of the guys there, you know, recently released from prison and they'll say, oh, this looks really nice because they've been incarcerated for maybe a year, 18 months. They say, you really did a good job on this. You've really done a good job on it. So what I say in return is, uh, so could you help me by, you know, picking up some of the trash in front or encourage people to use the trash can instead of throwing things into the garden? That would be great. And they said, we'll do the best we can, but at least it's in there. I've implanted that idea in their head. So... Just, just have some respect for yourself and where you live. Mm-hmm. Is is all that that can change the condition of people. Jamila, thank you so much for having me in your garden. Oh, you're more than welcome. I'm glad you came by. This sort of helps me get my day through my day. Yeah, me too. To find out more about the great work Jamila is doing in her garden and in her neighborhood, go to thetableunderground.com. You can find photos, links, and a lot more there. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the loop. Thanks for listening.